0: This special edition of the Fertility Podcast talks about the many ways that miscarriage affects us. From understanding more about why it happens, as we hear from experts explaining that in more detail, to where you can get support, which is why it's great to have Peanut as our episode sponsor. Sometimes you need access to help in the palm of your hand, and Peanut is the app to help you meet like-minded women who are also trying to conceive. Peanut provides a safe space for women trying to conceive to build friendships, ask questions and find support. So we have put together an overview of the many conversations we've had about baby loss in the hope that you'll find what you are looking for. And as always with these conversations, there may well be triggers for you. So please do make sure you are in the right place to listen. Now, our first conversation, we are rejoining Dr. Ingrid Gran, Senior Research Fellow in Reproductive Medicine and a consultant at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. And we're talking about the reasons why miscarriage happen. Ingrid explains in more details about chromosomal abnormalities and its link to female age. She also talks about other medical conditions and their link to miscarriage and what genetic factors might also be involved.
1: So we know increasingly more about why miscarriages might happen, but I think it's really hard for the patient in front of you to say, in very many cases, this is the reason this miscarriage happened. The thing we know is the most common cause of miscarriage is that the pregnancy itself, that the pregnancy tissue doesn't have the right genetics. So each of our cells in our body is made up of 23 pairs of chromosomes that carry the genetic material. Um, for all of our cells and we get 23 of those from an egg and 23 of those from a sperm and what we know in those very early stages of cell division as the eggs fertilized commonly you get genetic mistakes that mean that a pregnancy just can't develop normally so we hear about pregnancies um, with down syndrome where you get an extra chromosome 21 and lots of those pregnancies do continue but the vast majority of cases when Uh, It's another chromosome. The pregnancy just can't go beyond those first few weeks. And if you look at pregnancy tissue from miscarriage, particularly in sporadic miscarriage, and that I mean by a first miscarriage, for example, at least in half of those cases, you'll find that there's a chromosome problem that meant that this baby could never make it to a healthy term pregnancy. But there's a whole load of other stuff in there, so it's not just that. Um, We know that uh, the issue around chromosomes is really quite heavily related to female age. Um, and that's the bit that sadly none of us can change, but we know that as you get older, miscarriage is much, much more common. And I think that's one thing that's really, really hard for women to face, that there's a thing that you can't necessarily do something about. We know that if you're in your twenties, somewhere between 25-29, you've got about a one in ten chance of any individual pregnancy resulting in a miscarriage. But that changes really rapidly as you get older. So by the time a a woman's 45, it's actually about one in two pregnancies will end. And, you know, that's something that I think is often not commonly out there as a fact, because we all see the Cherie Blairs or the, you know, the famous people who have their babies much later in life. And what, of course, for the most part, and I'm sure you've already discovered this in talking to people, is that people don't tell the stories when it's not gone that way. That's a big part of it but it's not the only part of it by by any uh, sense of the word there's there's all sorts of other reasons why miscarriage may happen sometimes it can be other medical conditions may increase the risk of miscarriage so if you had diabetes for example that wasn't controlled well or thyroid problems that weren't controlled well they can be associated with miscarriage um we know that things like increasing weight seem to be associated with miscarriage we don't quite know all the reasons why Um, we've just done some really interesting genetic work that's just um, awaiting publication at the moment um, looking at screening of thousands and thousands of women who've had miscarriage to try and understand what genetic factors may be behind it and clearly that there are some genetic factors um, that may predispose some individuals to miscarriage and not others Um, So there's all sorts of factors. And then often when we're talking about miscarriage research, we describe this big black box, which is the lining of the womb or the endometrium, the bit that's really hard to see when a pregnancy loss occurs. What are the factors in that lining of the womb that may be associated with why a miscarriage happened? And it may be hormonal. There's some evidence for immune factors that are related to miscarriage. And All of these things may be relevant for any individual pregnancy loss and some of them more relevant, I guess, to women who've had, suffered multiple pregnancy losses. And and then it seems that the causes are somewhat different from the causes when someone might have had one pregnancy loss, although clearly there's some overlap and absolutely age is a factor in all of those, uh, those women very frequently. This next conversation...
0: Is with Zara Dawson, who has spoken about her experience of having to make the heartbreaking decision to have a medical termination. And when I first shared this chat, I was really keen to highlight the importance of making sure that you're comfortable listening to this because it was a sad conversation. And Zara has done an incredible job talking about this. She's been in the mainstream media, the likes of the Daily Mail, she's talked on loose women to help people understand it more. And I think she's amazingly brave. And she also talked about how much it impacted on her partner and how little
2: support there was for him. You know, he got told by the doctor that if I didn't have surgery within the next few hours, they weren't sure that I was going to make it through the night. And to be told that, I think, is horrendous. And yet he still had to be there because I was so very poorly and was poorly for the next six, seven, eight months. No, I, I don't feel there is enough support out there for the other halves in this journey at all. And he is actually, he won't mind me saying, he's actually about to go for his first counselling session. Right. Because I think with what we've just been through, this latest thing we've been through was just one thing too many. And I think he just wants to talk about it to somebody right. and right. just offload. And yeah, I think he's looking forward to that.
0: Well, let's talk about what's just happened because as if you hadn't been through enough, I know you've got your beautiful son. He's two and a half years old. Yes. Jax. We were just talking yes. about this, Jax. <laughs> so you had frozen embryos after that first cycle.
2: I did. So I had six embryos. We decided to have a frozen transfer. I had a, was lucky enough to have a natural transfer. Well, I say lucky. A natural frozen cycle is actually really stressful. Really? You think it's, yeah. I think because you have zero control. Right. And I felt we, when you're injecting yourself, it's all laid out for you. It's There's yeah. a tiny bit of control there. But natural, you are reliant on your body, your cycles. And it stressed me out intensely. So we actually had a transfer earlier this year in the summer. And we were very lucky that it worked. And on the I mean, day, the so embryologist okay. said that it was the way it was defrosting. And it had started to expand. And it was beautiful, were her words. So we were very hopeful. And... It was successful.
0: Okay, so a successful transfer and your second pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, this isn't a happy story, and I'm I'm actually struggling to talk to you about it because I I I I feel really invasive asking you this, but I know that you want to talk about it, but you. You had to have a termination of your pregnancy, didn't you?
2: I did, yeah. And everything was going fine. I had horrendous nausea, which I secretly loved because it made me feel like something was growing in there. And I was being scanned weekly at the early pregnancy unit and everything was going perfectly. And then we went for a scan. um, I was over over 12 weeks and we went for a scan and the sonographer said, everything looks fine. So I went and sat back out in the waiting room and she sent my other half downstairs with Jacks, And then she called me back in and she said, actually, we've found something in the stomach. It's a pouch of fluid. And to be honest with you, I could just, you know, when you you feel your heart is about to beat out of your chest. God. And I could see her lips moving and I couldn't really make out what she was saying. But basically there was something they were happy to wait another two weeks and see if it had improved but there was something wrong they were saying there was something wrong that it could have it could have sorted itself by the next scan but i think deep down i in that instance i just knew something was not right so i stayed at the early pregnancy unit for 7 hours waiting to see a fetal medicine doctor which i did and she kind of said the same thing wait another 2 weeks which i wasn't happy to do So the next day I went and got a private scan at the Great Portland Hospital just for a second opinion. And they confirmed that the baby had something called body stalk anomaly, which sadly isn't compatible with life at all. So I went home and I did, I did, I'm a bit of a researcher when it comes to things like this. I did my research. And as soon as I saw there had been four live births in 7 million people in the world, you know, four, four babies that had lived not very well. I kind of knew what we were up against. Um, And so the next day we went back to St. Thomas and it kind of all got confirmed. And we sadly decided that we wanted to terminate. We wanted to take all the pain in that instance so that baby would never know any pain, which, you know, it it kind of, it doesn't even make me emotional anymore because I think I know deep down we did the right thing for us. It may not be the right decision that everybody would make, but for us- As soon as we knew there wasn't a 1% chance that our baby would ever live, then we knew what we needed to do. Such a
0: heartbreaking decision to have to make. And do have a listen to Zara's story. I'll put the link in the show notes for this episode. And as with all of the content that we're sharing on the Fertility Podcast, we always want to make sure that you know where you can get support. And this next conversation is with Jen Coates, the Director of Bereavement Care at SANS, the stillbirth and neonatal death charity. And Jen explains just how challenging dealing with baby loss is for everyone involved. And the peer-to-peer support that they've created with bereaved parents who become befrienders, which I think is a lovely term. They've also created an app that you can download to get instant access to support Whenever you need it. It's described as one of the most isolating
3: of griefs, and in now, one of the most isolating of circumstances, sort of layered on top of that. So it's a really challenging time, and with Other types of bereavement happening and anxiety around those that we love who may be at risk, You know that all adds on to that sort of multi-layered, either anticipatory grief or actual grief that's happening at the moment. We have uh, the most phenomenal network of groups around the country. We have about 100 groups at the moment who are bereaved parents who have been through this experience. And we run face-to-face support meetings, usually uh, with those groups. We train bereaved parents to become befrienders. So there's a fairly intensive training process for them to become a befriender a period of time after their own loss to provide that really important peer-to-peer support I suppose. Um, We have a national helpline which is also staffed by paid staff but also who are bereaved parents themselves so there's that mixture of professional and peer support there we developed an app a bereavement support app in the last couple of years which has really helped to complement all of our services so that it can be downloaded at any time of the day or night so that there's that instant access to support for parents who are and families who are bereaved and just need to know a that there's somebody out there but also to get some of that practical information that you really need straight away when you're in hospital We also have an online community which obviously is all peer support, and that's moderated by our bereavement support team. And I think one of the really important things about bereavement support is it's not just that direct acute support that people need, but it's the ongoing support and different ways that people want to remember their baby. So some parents might want to get really involved in supporting research, for example, and finding out why others are keen to influence um, policymakers, And, And we have opportunities for people to do that as the voice of bereaved parents across the UK. So there are lots of different ways that we support parents either immediately or sort of in the years ahead, really, so that they can create a legacy for their baby that is really meaningful for them.
4: Do
0: you find that people that are going through it, knowing that they're talking to people who have literally walked the path ahead of them, they're more able to talk because of knowing that person totally gets them. Because I know that there's so much around this in terms of shame and feelings that people maybe put on themselves, blame, all these other things, especially if they've been through fertility treatment and this happens. Obviously, if it's a pregnancy loss later, a stillbirth, there's such complicated emotions that they can really have these frank and honest conversations with these other bereaved parents.
3: Absolutely. Uh, But I think it's a mixture of both. I think it's really important that people are able to speak to somebody who has been through the experience. But at, at the time when they need the support, it's really important that that person is able to hold that space for them and not necessarily to talk about their own experience, but just knowing that that person has had an experience of baby loss of some kind, I think can be very helpful for many people. But I think what's important is that the person who is listening and supporting has the skills to be able to do that and really hold someone in that space to enable them to explore their own grief.
0: When it comes to support the online TTC community is of course available but being able to meet up with someone who gets you is so priceless which is what Peanut can do by introducing you to women nearby who are at a similar stage in their journey. Now obviously we're all restricted at the moment which is where the virtual world steps in and Peanut also gives you access to other women who are there to listen, share information and offer valuable advice. And that's what we love to do here on the Fertility Podcast. And we're going back now to one of our fertility experts, Dr. Adrian Lower, talking about Asherman's syndrome, which is caused by the surgical procedures women have to go through when they have a miscarriage, as he explains here, and why all too often it goes undiagnosed.
5: Asherman's syndrome is a condition in which the front wall of the uterus sticks to the back wall of the uterus. So it's caused by fibrous adhesions or scarring inside the uterus, and it normally results from surgical treatment of a miscarriage or a retained placenta or termination of pregnancy when uh, the endometrium, the tissue which lines the uterus, is scraped away maybe a little too vigorously or even with normal force. Uh, if there's infection there, that can destroy the endometrium, and then if you don't have endometrium between the uh, the walls of the uterus, scar tissue falls and it can obliterate the cavity.
3: You've just made Nasi and I are watching each other on video. And you've just made us spo-
4: both squirm
3: <laughs> when you were explaining <laughs> that. <laughs> no, there's no nice way to
0: really describe it, though,
4: is no, there? No,
3: no, no. But that's a very good explanation, though. That that really does cover it well. I'm intrigued, though, with regards to how many women may be diagnosed with. Asherman's and also probably even more importantly how many may go undiagnosed?
5: That's a a very good question. Asherman's syndrome seems to be largely unrecognized by many of my colleagues. The exact incidence of Asherman's syndrome is unknown. Some people think it's as high as five percent of people who have uh, surgical procedures on their uterus will have adhesions afterwards. I think it may even be more than that. The average gynecologist will see one or two cases a year. A lot of people question whether it really exists or not. I see four or five people a week with Asherman syndrome, and I'm very clear that it does exist. But you have to look for it. You can't always tell from an ultrasound scan unless you're looking specifically for one or two very subtle and telltale signs. And the only real way to, to diagnose is, is by doing either a saline infusion scan, where you put saline in the womb to dilate it up a little bit, and you can then see the scarring and the, the tissue inside the uterus, or by a hysteroscopy where you actually put a little telescope inside the uterus to to have a look. But very often, putting the telescope in itself, if you dilate the the cervical canal, the opening to the womb beforehand, you can break down the very adhesions that you're looking for and not even realise that they were there in the first place. So it's it's under-recognised, but does cause problems. Uh, And then the other thing to say is that that many women wouldn't even know about it. They'd find perhaps that their periods became a Bit lighter after they've uh, had uh, a pregnancy uh, or a a termination, and if they're not actively trying to conceive, they might think, Oh, god, that's that's my periods aren't as heavy as they used to be, and and, and they may even think it's a benefit, which perhaps it is if they're not actively trying to conceive. But for those women who are wanting to get pregnant, if part of the cavity is obliterated, it can have a really profound effect on their fertility and often it is quite easily treated.
0: Now that conversation was part of an earlier one with our guest host Katie Linderman and Emily Jones-Ransley. Both have had infertility struggles due to thin lining issues and talk about being members of the thin lining brigade. Again you have to have a listen to the chat via the link in the show notes and be sure to be following Katie and Emily as they both are brilliant on Instagram. Now, in this final conversation, we join Kelly DeSilva, who has founded the Dovecote Childless Support Organisation, which enables and inspires people facing involuntary childness to reconnect with their daily lives. And Kelly does amazing work. I've known her for a good few years now. She speaks openly about her experiences in the press and also the work that she is doing to support her community. Now, here, Kelly talks about how she wanted to have immune tests ahead of further fertility treatment and how she then went ahead with the treatment with immune therapy as well as intralipid infusions which she explains and she also talks about how ultimately after losing her babies she and her partner made the decision after 10 years of trying to stop having more treatment. After our
4: first cycle, I stopped to have some um, immune testing. I'd done lots of research. So there's lots of um, media coverage out there at the moment about add-ons. But for me, having the immune Mm -hmm. testing and natural killer cells was actually something that I'd researched, something that I suggested and something that I really felt passionately about doing, even though it was really expensive. So that came back, actually, that I did have elevated natural killer cells. So that could potentially mean that the embryo um, was being attacked by my my natural killer cells. And I must say, you know, leading to that point, I I have felt in the past that I have been pregnant, but then I'd get my period. So um, for me, I have got other autoimmune issues going on. So it, it kind of made sense. So, following that diagnosis, if you like, we continued to have another cycle with um, immune therapy. So, I had steroids, blood thinners, and um, at that point, I had the intralipid um, infusions as well, which again suppresses the immune system. And to my amazement, actually got a positive pregnancy test. So, was absolutely delighted. Went, was getting all the pregnancy symptoms, went for the six-week scan. And unfortunately, the pregnancy wasn't viable. Even though I'd been getting all these symptoms, it just wasn't viable. So I went into that room thinking it was the first time we'd had two embryos put back. So is it going to be one? Is it going to be two? Never considering that there might be n- nothing there and they're, they're no preg- you know, there'd there be no pregnancy. So I was utterly, again, devastated um and that took quite a while to process obviously you kind of you've got the the heartbreak of it but in the other side of it it felt like we'd given it given us something to actually fix so we did continue to have two further cycles in our own mind mind we'd said that we'd have cycles but we did have a frozen embryo transfer but unfortunately those two final cycles failed as well and at that point emotionally physically financially we were just done and I think more so the emotional side it was just it just completely taken its toll over the over the nearly 10 years that we were on the journey
0: Now, I really wanted to share Kelly's story, which I hope you'll listen to via the link in the show notes to hear more about the amazing work that she's doing with the childless community and the support that she delivers one to one. As with everything that we do with the fertility podcast, we want to make sure that there are conversations for you to listen to whatever you decide is the right next step for you, whether it's more treatment or if that's stopping treatment. And I know that hearing from other people about the decisions they've made is so helpful. So be sure to check out the show notes so you can listen to all the different conversations that you've heard snippets of. And also do let us know what you think. And before I go, it's just time to say another thank you to our sponsor, Peanut. Whether it's understanding miscarriage, asking questions about upcoming fertility treatment, or maybe you think you're dealing with PCOS. Peanut is a place to connect with women who understand and you can download the app free today. Just head to peanut.app.link forward slash fertilitypoddy or you can find it in your app store and check out the show notes because I'll put that link there for you again.